And what we are redeemed from and separated from is, as you put it, that worldview where we actually believe God is out to get us. Definitions of Christian Terms, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser and I am here once again with Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. And hello again. And uh, today we're going to be talking about definitions. We realized um, over the last couple podcasts that there's terms that we use that it's kind of like, what is it, the character in uh, Princess Bride says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) And uh, we've discovered that there's quite a few terms that we use in Christianity that actually have different meanings than the way that we've typically defined them. And so we want to tackle some of those. And, uh, and in particular, we, um, when, before we started the podcast, Jim and I jotted down some that came to mind as far as, uh, what, what does this actually mean? I've always heard it termed, uh, defined this way. But I don't think it means what, I, what I've been told it means. So, so one of them, I want to open up with this one, is what does it mean to be saved? Nobody knows. That's it. We're done. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It, we, we, when you ask that question, immediately it um, came, comes to mind my uh, early years, uh, even into my teen years, the particular denomination I was a part of, we did three songs. Uh, then there was a couple of testimonies, and then the message, and and followed up by the altar call and opportunity to come up and get saved. And but the testimonies almost always went the exact same way. And, uh, you know, I've over the years, I've just laughed at how utterly ridiculous if somebody walked in that didn't know our language, you know, was like, what are you talking about? And here's the testimony. I'd like to thank God today that I am saved and sanctified and on my way to heaven. And it's like, Saved and sanctified. So maybe we'll take on both those words. But um, yeah, let's start with saved. <laughs> what does it mean to be? What are we being saved from? Let me tell yeah. you what it mean. What it meant for me in in my history, and then we'll jump over to what it what it actually means. Um, so for me, being saved was this. It goes back to our last podcast. It, it was this: you apprehended correct knowledge about about the Bible, about Jesus. That you you believe that Jesus died for your sins and and rose again. You you've accepted that message as being true, and so you you say a prayer in which you you repent of your sins. You say, "I'm not gonna." 
I'm going to turn away from this path of sin and I ask Jesus into my life and choose to follow him. That's And then when you did that, it meant you're saved from, really saved from hell, that you're not going to hell and now you're going to heaven. And that's that's what saved meant in the circles I traveled in. Well, saved from hell, uh, you know, eventually. But you're also saved from um, a life of... Uh, Bucking up against, you know, uh, you know, it's it's like uh, what Jesus said to Paul. It's hard to kick against the pricks, you know. Yeah, you know, it's it's like because if you're not saved, then God or or the Hound of Heaven, I think that's supposed to be the Holy Spirit. I think <laughs> is always going to be on your back trying to get you saved. And the way to get you saved is to cause all kinds of calamity into your life. And so God has a wonderful plan for your life if you would just get saved. And I heard it's that like, one, yeah. So you're you're getting saved not only from an eventual hell for all eternity, but you're also getting getting saved from a hell right here on earth. Uh you know, and 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 it's like it can't possibly mean that. Although we were raised to believe that that's what it meant. So over to you, Michael. Okay. Help us out here. So, well, um, I I have several important things, and I already told you I'm going to do a little experiment on you guys today. So those of you in the audience that are listening. Uh, I'm prepared here to, uh, to have some fun. Yes, indeed. So, gentlemen, um, you have to come up with a definition of sin. Where do you start? Okay. Where are you going to start? But see, I've, I've read your book. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what I'm going to give is the well, definition of sin, of sin is not what I would have said had I not read your I book. I said, where would you start? What would I start? I, I you want to you want to get a definition of a biblical term? Where do you start? Okay, well, I think the first time sin is called sin wasn't that when Cain Ab- murdered Abel? Very good. So, so what what tool do you want to use now? You want to use concordance. Oh, okay. You want to, but I have here a Greek concordance. Okay. Okay. Because I'm not interested in the English word sin because one thing I know is there are multiple words used in the biblical text for this phenomenon that we call sin. Just as there are multiple terms used for the phenomenon we call the devil, Satan, Beelzebul, prince of the power of the Just as there are multiple terms used for leadership in the church. And the word church, mm-hmm. correct? Right. Okay. Now, so I have a rule. Rule number one: I go my my Greek concordance, and uh, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look up all these terms. Okay, and I'm going to ask about the context of these terms. I'm going to ask about the writers. I'm going to ask: Are they doing something with these terms that is unusual? Okay, so. We picked sin, correct? No, no, we picked saved. Mm-hmm. We picked saved. Okay? Saved. Now, yeah. when you look in the New Testament, sozo is not used with reference to 
whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, you get saved from hell. It doesn't have to do with that. So that means that piece of our paradigm needs to be replaced. Because if we're going to talk about salvation, it's obviously not, you know, to save me from fire and brimstone that I deserve because I'm an Augustinian Calvinist. No, no, no. Um, it's something else. So when I'm looking at these contexts in which the verb sozo is found in, I find that in some cases, um, sozo can be to heal, and in other cases, to rescue. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So... Whatever phenomenon is occurring with sozo, first of all, it's a positive phenomenon, right? It's a it's a yeah. phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a phenomenon that takes me takes me from a way of thinking that I'm in to, to a way of thinking that is positive. Okay. Okay. Plus the first thing I have to note about that verb. Okay? I still haven't given it any clarification or definition. All I've noted is that in the places it's used. It's used in this, this aspect, not in the way that my tradition uses it. So that's number one, okay. right? But we 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 have to. Uh, there's another move we're going to have to make with sozo, and it's it's going to be the same with every other term we come to use in this podcast. We have to talk about sozo in terms of the death of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. Okay, because sozo in Paul is used with reference to that event. What is salvific about someone that's been tortured and hung up to dry and died? What's what's really salvific about that? Okay, now in the framework of religion, all religion. What makes that salvific is this category of sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice. And to be saved is to participate in that sacrifice. Okay? Okay. So they got the, you know, Jesus died for you part correct. There is nothing, nothing in the New Testament where we see a negative God at the cross. There's nowhere in the Passion Narrative or in the New Testament writings you see an angry, uh, wrathful God at the cross. So that's another piece we have to take out of our theology. Sozo is not with reference to an angry God. If it's not with reference to a, a hell that is in the future for me, and if it's not with reference to an angry God, I take those two out of my theology because... It's not used that way in the New Testament. How is it used? It's used to take this life of mine, which is lived in darkness, where I don't know where I'm going, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know who I am, I don't know why I do things I don't want to do, I don't know why I'm... And it, it brings light and life. So it both enlightens intellectually, but it invigorates emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, intellectually. The whole thing is life-giving. So that my life becomes light and life to others. That's Sozo in the New Testament. Okay. Very good. Very good. It... it, um... As, as as we were thinking about what words we were uh, going to 
trying to find here this uh, this week, and we decided we wanted to start with the word saved. My mind went to Jesus's discord with with uh, uh, was it Nicodemus, uh, it, it, you know, uh, about being born again. Yeah, and another term that gets used um, in the evangelical circles. But as you're talking there, Michael, as as he continues on in the uh, third chapter of John, this is the condemnation that light has come to the world, but men love the darkness more than the light. And, and I think that ties into what you were talking about, uh, that Jesus is the light of the world. Yes. And, and we more or less set in darkness. So am I understanding you that Soto, uh, um, salvation is about coming out of darkness and coming into light? Absolutely. And, and, and that's on every level, emotional, psychological, physical, um, you know, spiritual. It's in all the aspects of what make us a fully embodied human creature. So being saved then, according to the term so-so, it's, it's moving from something, it, it's becoming something positive. It's absolutely something positive because it's oiangelion, it's good news, okay? Okay. What makes it good, what makes it good is the cross because at the cross we see stripped away. In fact, in fact, we really should start here. If we're going to define terms, we should define the term God. Try defining the term God. The church has been doing that for 2,000 years, and they got their confessions of faith with, you know, God is just kind of mutable, omnipotent, you know, they just load him up with a thousand adjectives. By the time you're done, you're going, oh, God is just this awesomest thing, man, just like, you know, but you can't relate to that thing at all, number one. And here, this definition of God has nothing to do with the cross. So where is God in the cross event? Where is God in the cross event? You can't look at you cannot look at the passion narrative and find God. God first, what gets eliminated? The Deus ex machina God, the God who comes down, swoops down. I'm not going to let you kill my son Jesus. Here, Jesus, I'm taking you off the cross, healing those wounds. Here's your sword. Go get your enemies. Right? You don't have anything like that. So. In addition to taking the wrathful God out of our theology by the cross, in addition to taking hell out of our theology by the cross, now we have to take the deus ex machina concept out of our theology by the cross, right? And now we have a place that we can finally start to redefine everything. Mm-hmm. The cross. That's why mm-hmm. we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about sin, the devil, the church. We're going to talk about sanctification, glorification, whatever we're going to talk about has to be done explicitly in terms of how does that relate to this event, this passion narrative event? Because it's the passion redefines our terms. The passion redefines. Mm-hmm. What did the mm-hmm. passion do for, mm-hmm. for the category nomos or Torah for Paul? The passion redefined it because Paul realized people could use Torah to kill legitimately in the name of God. Therefore, Torah had to go. And so the law dies on the cross, right? Yeah. Sin right. is crucified right. on the cross, right? And, and then 
um, maybe I'm jumping the gun here. We did touch on this in the podcast, but but then, so how do we define sin? Well, no, okay. So now we have to do work. You see, we need so we need Bibles first of all. We, you know, we're you know, I mean, I've got mine, and and we need we need you know. So so let's do this. So is there a writer? How how, how does any New Testament writer correlate, say, the term hamartia or paraptoma, either one? With the cross, do you think of texts in your minds? <laughs> Silence. <laughs> How about the Absolute Great Read of First Corinthians, um, chapter fifteen, where Paul says, in that in that very crucial thing, Christ died according to the scriptures. Does it say for our sins? No, it says according to the scriptures. That's all it says. Hmm. Does it ever? Did, can you think of a text? Uh, well, there's one in the Petrine literature, but. Outside of that, where our sins are placed on Jesus? I'm trying to think here. You don't find it. It's not there. Yeah, because I, I can't think of anything. Yeah. Um, is there a writer that connects sin with the cross? And that's going to help you definition. I could just think of the one that uh, says, um, he became sin. He who knew no sin yeah. was considered to be sin or became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is uh, the one not knowing sin on our behalf became sin in order that we might become the rectification of God in him. Okay. What's the relationship between sin and the cross? The one not knowing sin, epoiesen, was made sin. So Jesus, who does not know what this category is, is Determined to be that, but who decided Jesus was sin? Did God? Did God ever? Did it ever say God decided Jesus was sinful? No. Who decided Jesus was sinful? We did. We did. Caiaphas, yeah. Pilate, the crowd, the mob, the people. People decided Jesus was sinful, didn't they? Was that a correct decision? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. Now look at the next part of the sentence. In order that. We might become the rectified of God in him. Now, mm-hmm. who was it mm-hmm. that determined Jesus was sinful? We did. Is that the correct decision, yes or no? No. Who is it that determines we're rectified? God does. Is that the correct decision? No. <laughs> if we can make the wrong decision and determine the sinless one to be sin and thus kill him, God has the right to turn around and rectify all of us in him and forgive all of us in him. Wow. Excellent. Excellent. So I have a couple more scriptures here to to look at and unpack, but essentially what what, what I hear you saying is that what we're being saved from is a mindset, if you will, Absolutely, but but yeah. but Jim, let's. This is so important. This is so so important. Um, a mindset is more than just the intellectual. It's the oh, absolutely. It's the cultural taping system that's been implanted in us since birth, as we have grown up in families, imitated siblings, gone to. It's all. It's everything. It's our TV. It's our radio. It's our music. It's everything. Okay. It's not just the mm-hmm. intellectual part. It's our worldview that has to come crashing down. 
are the way we think we exist in the world is an illusion. Sure. And the gospel shows us that. With the law of first mention, which uh, gets people love to throw around now, if sin is first mentioned in the story of, of the Cain and Abel, right? Uh, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire its desire is for yeah. you. Yeah. It's it's that mindset of uh, retribution. It's the mindset of I am allowed to be both a jury, judge, and executioner. Um, Absolutely. And so. So there's a couple of scriptures here, one Old Testament, one New Testament. The Old Testament scripture is Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned each one to his own way. The Lord has caused the sin of us all to fall on him. And then Peter says, he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. Simple reading of that, certainly with the uh, mindset of being saved and whatever, simple reading is the interpretation is that he took sin off of us and put on Jesus. Yeah. do you want to take either of those scriptures there, Michael, well, and unpack yeah, well, that a little I, bit? I thought we've dealt with the Isaiah uh, text before on here, where we talked about the difference between the Hebrew text, the Septuagint text, and how yes. the Septuagint yeah. text strips the sacrificial out. Right. right. Yeah, we so did. So regarding the Peter right. piece now, so when mm-hmm. I see a text like that, in first, and you're quoting First Peter, I believe, correct? Yes. Yes. So I believe First Peter was authentic to the Apostle Peter. And um, I also know that Peter had major issues with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was non-sacrificial in his thinking, whereas Peter was sacrificial in his thinking. So the first thing is I would expect to find sacrificial motifs in First Peter. I would just naturally expect to find them, you know, whereas I could, would naturally expect not to find them in Galatians. So it doesn't surprise me that Peter could make a statement like that. He bore our sins. But here's the problem. What is Jesus being compared to at that point? What bears sins in Judaism? Well, the sacrificial lamb. or What sacrificial lamb? The goat. It would be the goat, not the lamb. It would not be the lamb. It would be the goat that was the sins were laid on and sent into the wilderness. Okay. So now the, the, the suggestion would be, that that text has to refer to uh, something like Yom Kippur, mm-hmm, correct? Mm-hmm. Which would see uh, Jesus as um, the innocent sacrifice and the guilty one, right? Mm-hmm. Now, do you know who first came up with that interpretation? It's not Peter. It's John Calvin. Okay. Peter cannot be referencing the Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur narrative here. It's just, um, it's it's interesting how in the New Testament, Jesus is not compared to that event. His death is not compared to Yom Kippur. Did you ever notice that? It's compared to Pascha. 
Yes. Yeah, to Passover, yeah. Yes. And yes. so you have kind of an interesting move here where Peter seems to be talking about our sins going on to Jesus, but if it if it can be established, he can't be referring to the uh, Yom Kippur goat. What's he doing? Well, is there any other writer that makes an identical move? Going over to the Passover lamb, yeah. that that would be John, be John who Behold, did that. The yeah. Lamb of God who takes away or bears away the sins yeah. of the world. Yeah. Very but good. Important. This lamb does not suffer because of the sins of the world. He removes them. He takes them away. Again, that's part of that sozo event. He removes us from sin. He removes sin from us. Okay. Yes. Um, so now I go back to first Peter and I ask, okay, what's Peter doing in a text like this? If it's not the Yom Kippur narrative, if it's a similar move as the Yohanan writer, are there other Paschal themes in first Peter? And I'm going to start finding them. And I'm going to realize the early Mm -hmm. church has done something quite unique. They've, they've combined together the escape from the vengeful God. That's the Passover narrative, right? With escape from sin. Sin is the vengeful God. Satan is the vengeful God. Religion has all of that mixed up in it. And what we are redeemed from and separated from is, as you put it, that worldview where we actually believe God is out to get us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I would want to go through Peter then and start scouring it for more of those motifs, which I haven't done before. I appreciate, you know, you saying I I would want to go through Peter, but that transformation, if you will, simply, maybe not so simply, but anyhow, redefining what sin is, redefining what salvation is, it changes my whole approach to this thing. So not only in Peter, good. <laughs> but in all the writings of the New Testament, I interpret it completely different because my foundation or my grid has now changed. So my interpretation, mm-hmm. everything that comes off of that takes a whole different, you know, 180 degree turn or, or whatever, you know, but it's opposite. And and again, that gets back to Jesus saying, "You need to be born again. If you're if, without being born from above, you can't see the kingdom. All That's you're going true. to see is, uh, you know, whatever. You know, right. uh, the retributive God. You're going to see sin. You're going to see, you know, everything. Yeah. yeah. But you need whole new." Uh, way of looking at things. You need the light. You need the light. And we've talked okay. about that. Jesus was both love and light, or yeah. God. Right. Yeah. You need the hermeneutic, is what you need. Yes. Yes. And the cross supplies that hermeneutic. Right. You were going to say something, Lauren? I, I'm pondering because around around Easter time, you, you'll hear the Passover lamb um, talked about a lot. and But it's done from a sacrificial stance where uh, you know they'll talk about how john the baptist said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world and and i've heard that um you know people talk about putting you know putting the sins on jesus the sacrificial lamb who who takes away the sins can can you bring some clarity to this okay so to bear away the sin of the world okay notice that it's the 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 sin of the cosmos 
okay? The cosmos. Doesn't say the sin of the people. Doesn't say the sin of humanity. Doesn't say the sin of, you see what I'm saying? Doesn't say those. It, there are words in Greek for these things, right? They're, yeah. It just takes away the sin of the cosmos. This, whatever this thing sin is that infects cosmos. Cosmos is the Greek term for, as Jim said, how we structure our reality. You know, if, if I'm, I don't mean to make fun here, but when a woman brings order to her face with makeup, she uses cosmetics. Same term, cosmos, to bring into order. When sin is brought into the cosmos, it destructures that order. It deforms it. It bends it. It twists it. It turns good news into into lies. It turns bad news into truth. It, it distorts everything. Jesus came to separate that. We know that that very text in the fourth gospel, we know where that separation takes place. It takes place on the cross, period. And we also know from the Ohanan writer that um, uh, the, at that hour, Jesus' death, the, the passion narrative, um, sin, righteousness, and uh, judgment will all be judged. Why? Because mm-hmm. we don't know what sin is. We, de- we mm-hmm. determined an innocent person guilty, and that innocent person happened to be God's son. Whoop. Wow. Yeah, so we don't know what sin is, so it's got to get judged. He was innocent. He was righteous. We didn't get that either. Okay, throw righteousness under the bus. There it goes, under the cross. How about judgment? We made judgment, and it was false, wrong judgment. Well, throw judgment under there too. Sin, righteousness, and judgment, the three things so important to the evangelical gospel, are all crucified with Christ in the Johannine narrative. That means to bear away the sins of the world has nothing to do with Jesus taking on my little peccadillos. Oh, I had this little nasty thought about Becky. Oh, my God. You know, I'm a sinner. Jesus, please forgive me. You know, I jerked off again in the toilet bowl. Whatever. I don't care. (laughs) And and women have their own sins. They're petty gossip and this and that and all those things they do. And it's just like, and we we think that's sin. That is not sin. Sin is always first and foremost relational and not with reference to God. In the New Testament, sin is on that that level of human relationships. We can't really sin against God, but we can sure sin against each other. Mm-hmm. That that prompts for me a big, uh, uh, what, what is it, say law. Because <laughs> I'm just sitting here pondering that. I loved how you, you broke down the judgment sin and uh what, what was the third one um uh, uh, righteousness. righteousness righteousness because righteousness. oh my gosh that um that tears at everything that we think we do so well and, and i mean in 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 myself not not just not just humanity in general i'm i'm convinced that when i'm when when i'm seeing somebody doing something wrong or something you know that that my judgment is is right they're a yeah. jerk yeah. you know um when when i'm when i'm looking at when i pass the judgment oh yeah they deserved it you know and so it just it really shows god bringing light to to us to who we are yeah. Because it shows that this is, the, I mean, it goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, instead of leaning on, on the father for trust. No, 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 no. We got this thing. We got this judgment thing. We got, we, we know good and evil. We, we got this figured out, you know, uh, we don't mm-hmm. need you, God. 
we we don't need to trust you. We we figure this out. Where like you said um, uh, on another podcast, how to be truly human is to truly trust the Father, and how Jesus showed that His judgment, He said, was righteous because He came from the Father, mm-hmm. and 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 then He turns around and says, "And I don't judge." Right, right. I mean, yeah. the same gospel that's that's that says uh, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world uh, has Jesus saying, "I don't judge," and has Jesus also saying, "The Father doesn't judge." Right. It's pretty profound. Yeah. Um, that's what I was saying. It's like you could almost just pause, play some music, and everybody, let's think about this for a little bit, you know, because <laughs> it's, it's, um, so, so another thing I, I want to hit on though, along the same lines with the Lamb of God, because, because I hear, um, another thing I hear all the time is, you know, just as the children of Israel, the Lamb of God, you know, they, 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 um, the Hebrews, when they were leaving Egypt, you know, they killed the Lamb and they put his blood on the doorpost. So, and it's used from a perspective of, of Jesus, again, being sacrificial, you know, that, that unless you get the blood of Jesus covering your life, you know, um, that you're, that, that you're, you're doomed, you know, because yeah. you, you got to be like the children of Israel putting that blood on the, on the doorpost. Yeah. So now you've just thrown the, the real conundrum here. Um, it's always plagued the church and that has to do with the, fact that the gospel is an invitation and it can be received or it can be rejected. The offense of the gospel in the evangelical fundamentalist tradition uh, is the very fact that it is no different than the message of all the other gods who have been sacrificial from time immemorial and Janus faced. That's the offense. The offense in the true gospel is that Jesus forgives his persecutors He does not respond violently or retaliatory to them. And in so doing, he exhibits the Father's pure and holy, loving will. That's the offense. Now, we don't preach that, and so we don't give people a chance to reject it. Instead, we preach this other false gospel, and some people accept it because, like, they're easily manipulated, and some people reject it because they can see through it. But that has nothing to do with their relationship with the Father or with God, because they're just they're rejecting or accepting a false message, a message that's just another God. But this time we put a little Jesus lipstick on it and and prayed it around, and so we've got our trans Jesus. You know, he's sort of Jesus, but he's really not. You know, <laughs> right? It becomes necessary as we work through any theological concept or notion, or idea, to have it stripped by the cross. I mean, we, the, the cross is the, that is the event that, that really does strip away false knowledge of God. Because in the cross, we have to come to terms in the cross with things like Auschwitz, victims of killers, state-sponsored terrorism. And we have to come to terms with gruesome violence and death that we human beings sanction in various forms and legitimize in various forms. And then in other forms, we delegitimize them because we think we know what's right, whereas the kingdom of God comes as a whole total new worldview. And I, I, I think that, that the time will come again when the gospel will be preached from pulpits I believe the time will come again when Christians will 
learn to discriminate between religion and revelation in the Bible, and, and that they will form communities that are indeed full of the Holy Spirit of Jesus himself uh, as they learn to live uh, in our time, in their time, as we're all going to live when God reigns over all. You, you brought up a, another interesting aspect of this whole thing because we talk about um, you know f- Jesus being nonviolent and following in his footsteps of not being violent and not retaliating. But when you tie judgment into that, um, it adds a, another layer onto why we choose not to be violent. Um, because what I'm realizing is it, it, it makes you go, it makes you surrender in the sense of like, I've seen, I cannot righteously judge. So it is not my place to take up violence against another person because I know from the cross where my own judgment takes me right. to judging someone who doesn't deserve to be judged. And so, so it's that trust of, I trust it to the father. And then the father says, I don't judge. Yeah. And the father says, I've got a different measure of judgment. I bring justice by showing mercy. And if you can't deal with that, well, then you can't deal with the gospel. Right. So I I was thinking, um, Michael, as you were talking um, in answer to what Lauren had asked uh, about uh, Passover. Um, Passover, as I understand it, was actually a, a meal. Yeah. That sacrifice, oh, sure. sacrifice lamb was actually to provide a meal for Correct. her. Uh, and it was uh, Passover uh, that Jesus uh, in the upper room said, I've, I've, I've longed for this, this time, this meal uh, to set with you. And it, it was there that he introduced the Eucharist. Um, Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no no place in me. And how does that tie into this story of uh, salvation, of sozo, uh, of uh, redemption? Which piece, Jim? The Eucharistic piece? Well, we've always been, as Lauren said, we've always been told that Passover was about the blood and oh, 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 you know okay, on the okay, mantle okay. and the and the and the doorpost okay. makes the shape so, of the cross yeah. and okay. so you know etc. Yeah. First of all, let's yeah. go to the Luke and Gospel. Yeah. And we go to the Mount of Transfiguration. And it becomes very clear on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is juxtaposed with Moses and Elijah, the two greatest prophets in Israel's history. And uh, the father exclusively uh, screams out from heaven, listen to my son, pay attention to my son. In that light, let's go to the Lucan. In fact, you go to any of the passion narratives that you want, and not one time is a lamb mentioned. Mm-hmm. You got bread, you got wine, mm-hmm. but no mention of the lamb or the bitter herbs. So it would appear that in constructing the passion narrative, the early Christians did not think of Jesus in terms of the lamb. Okay. Now, that could be because in reality, Jesus did not have a Passover meal. It was something he longed to have. He'd hope he'd live to see it, because if he was alive after tomorrow, he'd get to eat it, but he wouldn't be. Okay, so so the connection, the connection to Passover uh, themes is tenuous. Okay, 
They're not, they're not strong. They're tenuous. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. as on the mountaintop, uh, when you have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking, it says, they talked about his departure. That's some translations. Some translations, they talked about his death. Some translations. But the Greek word is exodus. They talked about his exodus, his, his way out. How was he going to get out of this thing? That's what they were talking about. And that thing is now this passion narrative that has tenuous connections to Passover for allegorical purposes or even interpretive purposes. The primary elements of bread and wine, which would be common in festal meals and aristocratic meals as well, um, but bread for everybody, the common person had access to bread. If what, what Jesus is doing is performing, performing a way out, an exodus. It starts with washing feet. This is how it is, guys. This is what I'm doing. I'm, ser I'm showing you. I'm serving. I'm serving. I'm showing you a way out. I'm serving. It moves to, to non-retaliation, non-recrimination, no blame game on Jesus' part. He doesn't blame anybody. Forgiving in spite of everything. I mean, this is modeling something here. It's modeling an entire lifestyle, but a behavior pattern for what God looks like. That's amazing. That's an amazing God. I mean, sometimes I just get caught up in this, and I just look up and I say, Jesus, you're just amazing to me. You're just, I can't conceive yeah. of how it happened. I can't conceive of how you did this. I can't imagine what you went through by yourself, by yourself. Yeah. Nobody around, you know, believing in you at that point, man. Went through this thing by yourself. So it puts a, a uh, in my mind, it puts a, a, a focus on his prayer in the garden. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Has to be much more than just the the cup of the cross. There has to be something that he's he's expanding on that what you're saying is the the escape the all all of it is wrapped up in that action on the cross but there's but i i don't even know the words i'm trying to wrestle with but everything turns on that one action of the cross everything turns on that it's the fulcrum of the universe so I mean, I, I, I'm actually hearing our Lord saying, "If it was possible to do it another way, you know, take this off of me. This is a heavy weight to carry." Um, am I am I seeing seeing something in that? Is is there really something in that, Michael? Yeah, Jesus realizes there's only two alternatives. There's the alternative to die, which this is the road to the cross. And there's the alternative to go out and be the conquering Davidic Messiah. Okay. And I believe it's Matthew's Gospel where uh, uh, Jesus in the Gethsemane narrative says, um, don't you realize I could call legions of angels down? You know? Yes. Um, yeah. Book of Revelation, Wrath of God, Terminator stuff. So you have that, but 
the question is, if Jesus chooses not to do that Davidic warrior thing, which everybody's waiting for, mm-hmm. banking on, mm-hmm. hoping and trusting, uh, he's going to die. He doesn't want to die. He's just like us. He doesn't want. He doesn't want to go get arrested. He knows he's going to get tortured. There's not a human being on the planet that's going to go, oh, dear God, I just can't wait to do your will. Beat me, beat me, Jesus. Amen. No, 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 no. God did not want the Son to suffer. This was the furthest thing from the Father's will, that Jesus should go through what we were going to put him through. The Father did not want this. But if we were going to put him through it, and it's our most fundamental mechanism as a species, the Father was going to enter into it with everything that, that, that is available in the Godhead and thus turn everything around for us. Good. Dude, you just like, I don't know, I, w- I was just sitting here thinking, um, we talk about Jesus becoming incarnate and, and walking among us and, and really being one of us. And just hearing this, it, it, it blows your mind when you realize not only did he just walk among us and, you know, get tired like us, eat with us, suffer like we, you know, go through things like we do, but to realize, no, he's so immersed with us that he went down to the depths of the darkest part of our humanity, became the the suffering victim of the darkest parts of who we are. So, I mean, he, he doesn't just identify with us as on a surface level of, oh, we're, we're human, but he identifies with us to every suffering victim in throughout history to the mm-hmm. deepest darkest pits and and the cruelty uh, of us you know just just i mean because he's love he doesn't participate on the cruelty side but he was he was the the target of that cruelty and so he he when he became incarnate he he took it all yeah. i mean he drank that cup he drank that cup to his dregs Yes, it, it, it's like um, you you watch movies sometimes, or or maybe even in real life you've you've experienced this, where somebody is going through an absolutely hellish experience. Uh, their kid got kidnapped. Their spouse got murdered. Uh, you know, in, in a violent way, whatever, and you're trying to comfort them, and you say, "Man, I." I understand, or, you know, I know what you're going through. I understand what's what you're going through. And and the other person looks at you and say, how can you possibly understand? Okay. But what you're saying, Lauren, is that's why Jesus can say, I understand. Because he went through it all. He went through everything that we're experienced, the the betrayal, the denial, the, you know, the murder, the, you name it. He went through it. He, you know, and, and I, I look at that and I, I say, you know, that's a, that's a God who I want to love. That's a God who mm-hmm. I want to uh, be in a relationship with. Because he understands, he gets me, if you will. <laughs> you know, yeah. he, he, it, there's nothing I'm going through that he's like, Jesus, Jim, I don't have a clue what you're going through because I've never had to experience that. It's like, it's like, and 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 what you're saying, Michael, is 
I've never heard it put that way, but I love it. God didn't want Jesus to die. But he's like, if this is what's going if this is what's going to happen, this is how I what I heard from you, then I'm going to enter into it and I'm I'm going to use this as a way to just change the whole story, the whole right. scenario. Exactly I'm going to be in, I'm going to be fully engaged in this thing. That's right. And yeah, and and again, that brings it to a point where that's a god I want to serve. You know, I, you know, I want to love. I want to be in a relationship with a god like that. That Amen. um you know, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful story. Much more beautiful than the one that we preached <laughs> for years. <laughs> Anyhow. All right. Yeah. I mean to to think that when they when when they come to to kill him, you know that that he not only just goes, okay, well, I'm going to go through this, and I'm going to even it's a high enough level to go. I'm not going to retaliate, but then to even go, you don't take my life, I give it to you. Here's my life, take it, it's yours. Do with it what you want. Beat it, crush so it. So good, you know. So good. Oh my yep. gosh, I can't even comprehend that. Yeah. And to take it a step further and say, I don't want God to hold this against you either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about this being saved, everything we just described there then, because if he's our pattern, then wouldn't being saved be that we become like that where we're saved from that that sin that came from Cain, that retaliation and all that crap, that that we're that we're saved from that. It's Paul calls it the world, but but when we that's so often used in in uh, fundamentalist evangelical circles, it's like bad thoughts, bad movies, bad TV shows. But in this, it's that programming of vengeance, violence, retaliation, hatred. Um, unforgiveness yeah all of that yeah. so anybody anybody can say oh gee I, I love jesus i'm a churchgoer i i i don't i don't like the bad guys and i like the you know the good guys and 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 just to show you how easy it is to get caught up in all these false judgments is that we get set up mythologically they frame our films so that we know very clearly who the bad guys are and who the good guys are and that's why you can go back through cinemagraphic history in, in America. Uh, for a long time, it was the Russians that were the bad guys. And then later it became the Muslims, you know. And then when we moved into anti-governmental and anti-institutional things, it was the elite, the elite powers, you know, and on and on and on. We, we get sucked into that. I, I, you know, when I'm watching my movies, I'm rooting for, you know, the, for, you know, Gerard Butler with his gun to go kill all the bad guys. <laughs> Amen. You know, they deserve it. They deserve You go get them. You know? But in real life, you know, I, I wouldn't encourage that kind of behavior. So then I have to ask myself, well, what's going on inside me that that kind of mythology is still there? It's because it still meets a need. And it meets a very sick need. The need to judge. They need to be able to go, mm -hmm. I can still judge. See, I can still tell who's good and bad. Hollywood's not telling me. They're not setting me up. I'm making my own decisions, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm getting set up. Um, I want to ask you guys a question now. So in, in this business, there's a text in um, Colossians chapter 1, which is 
always provided um, uh, wonderful fodder for the so-called finished works people. Oh, they hate this text. They hate this, hate this, hate this, hate this, hate this. You know the finished work people. Okay. Verse 24, Colossians 1. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Hebrews said he was sacrificed once for all, right? But Paul's saying there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions that he's experiencing. What is it? Jesus talked about a cup that he had to drink. Yeah. In the garden, he said, if it possible, take this cup from yeah. me. Yeah. He also talked to the disciples, and he said, unless you drink from that cup, there's a cup There's a cup that you're going to have to drink from. Right. And, and in another place, he said, in this world, you're going to suffer persecution. And I'm yeah. wondering if somehow that's touching on what this scripture is talking about, that there's an affliction that the church has to go through. I, I would say you're very close. As long as, it's, as long as it's not to be perceived of within the framework of the Jewish scriptures, notion of the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus is not okay. drinking okay. the cup of yes. the wrath of God. He's drinking the cup of human exactly. wrath. Exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so yes. what is it that the what is it the following Jesus teaches people to do? In a sense, the same thing that being a follower of the Buddha does. It teaches you how to suffer. Uh, yes, yes. But in the Buddha's case, the suffering has to do with the illusion of life and the world and reality around you, whereas okay. in the Gospels, it has to do with social relationships. Yes, it's interesting that Paul said at one time, "I have no one." left except timothy all asia has turned against me he said i think a person who's actually walking in the gospel uh will see people who at one time were their compadres if you will turn against them well, that's been my experience I was going to say, yeah, Michael, you, you've never seen that one. No, <laughs> no never. <laughs> but that's a cup that we don't want to drink from. No, it's not a kindly cup, I'll say that much. Right. So filling that out then, the, the what is lacking in his affliction, can you can you fill that in well, now? I was asking you. <laughs> well, I'm not, where am I? The, and just, just because Hannah Graff retired doesn't mean I've not become the boss. We both attempted to answer it. Now it's time for the professor to tell us we're wrong and tell us what the right <laughs> that answer is. You know. <laughs> I refuse to answer on the grounds I may incriminate or intimidate my own fault. <laughs> Something just fell on Jim. What was that? Really? <laughs> the judgment of God judgment just came God down. The judgment of Boom. God. Yeah, really? Oh my gosh! I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying to the current to the Colossian body, you know, where the, for his view of the church is we're all one body, right, and all the body parts count. I think he's saying, look, I'm that part of the body that's being afflicted right now, 
and I rejoice in it because then you're not being afflicted. Okay. I, I'm the broken toe, you know, and I'll t- I'll uh-huh. handle the pain. I'll suck it up. I'll deal with it, so that you know, so you know, you don't have to be uh, afflicted. No, we get to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. This was uh, this was uh, the one. I, I mean, I've had through one, two. I've had three mystical experiences in my life, and the uh, the last one was an experience where uh, I, I was uh, in a meditation, and next thing I know, I'm hanging on a cross. Um, mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. the forgiveness just flowing through me to, to to everybody that was this is back in the you know 2017 you know summer 2017 and I was stunned by it just stunned by it stunned by the event stunned stunned by the words the the father said stunned by what it, what it meant to to experience the pain, the horror, and the love all at once, all of it all at once, was just stunning. There's nothing like the cross to to bring life, strange as it may say. So Paul's statement, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ in me, is more than this, you know, little, little meme, if you will, of, yes, I'm hanging on the cross with Christ. It's like... It's real. It's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real. When you yeah, exactly. when you're confronted with your enemies as they are screaming and yelling at you, and and um, and you're able to look them in the eye and with authenticity say, "I forgive you. It's okay. I forgive you." There's there's going to be another side of this, and you'll you'll figure that out, and we'll we'll get there. But I forgive you. I trust the Father. Man, that there's some, some there's power in forgiveness that And and when the one who said I will never depart, all others will turn from you, but I will be on your side Amen. is the one that cusses you out <laughs> yeah, the yeah. same night and denies you yeah, yeah. to forgive them also. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You yeah. have so much reason to, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, just like we were talking about with the suffering side, that goes also to a whole nother level because then you you're dealing with the betrayal side yeah. of of everything, and and that's, I mean, even um, psychologically, they've said betrayal is is the worst thing a human being can go through because you know people that you've trusted and were friends with and stuff to turn on you, it's worse than having a stranger you know hate you. It's somebody that was actually your friend. I mean, that's that's just. Again, and Jesus doesn't only forgive and welcome and welcomes Peter right back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Good grief. Oh yeah. Yeah. Puts him in charge. <laughs> right. Not your best wow. first or leadership move, Jesus. <laughs> oh man, can you imagine that? I mean, just yeah. put that in a church yeah. setting. Pastor guy totally cuts him down, trashes him, and everything. Then comes back. I'm really sorry, you know. And pastor says, "That's okay. I'm going to put you in charge of the board of deacons That's now." Right. You know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus, you ain't us. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say, and it may take it down a, a, another uh, whole trail. But Michael, you said uh, it's impossible to sin against God. Yes. And I I, I want to just touch on that just for a second, 
uh, I know this will cause us to go a little bit over, but uh, in in uh, David's uh, great repentant prayer uh, in uh, recorded in the fifty first uh, Psalm, yes. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this wicked thing. Um, I think it's that scripture and others like it that we get this idea that that when we sin, we sin against God. We Uh, do. Can you take a few minutes and just address that? Yeah, how arrogant of David. If David is the writer of the Psalm number one, and if the sure. and the psalm is attributed in the tradition to his post Bathsheba affair, right. how arrogant of David, how self-centered of David, how narcissistic of David to go, oh God, I've only sinned against you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so I'll deal with you. You didn't sin against Uriah. You didn't right. sin against his wife. Right? Are you kidding me? You and you got the. Mm-hmm balls to mm-hmm. stand there and go dear lord it's let's make this easy now i sinned against you so uh let there be no repercussions amen that's just i just i'm i'm not attracted to that at all against you and against you all no no there that there's there's a view of god that is somehow Oh, David broke a little law. Let's go find out which, oh, paragraph 39, section 17, line 3. David broke that one. Do we have any? Oh, no, God, there's a whole bunch of, no, that that, that whole view of God is like, throw it out the window. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sin is something we do to each other. Sin is something we yeah, do to each right, other, right. you know? I mean, right. you, you Good. know. I, Good. Yeah. And in Psalm fifty-one, also, if if David did write it, or even if somebody else wrote it after him, attributing it to him, um, I think there's also culturally there would be the standpoint of that David is king, yeah. and 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 so in their culture, you know, kings are appointed by God and they're above mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being questioned by the people beneath them. So so for him in that position of king, the mentality could very well be that you're you know that, that it's against God I sinned because God put me in this position. And, uh, and, and, you know, if, cause he's not a commoner, you know, he's, he's not on the same level as Uriah and, and Bathsheba and the, and the people beneath him, at least, at least, you know, when you look at the way, well, he um, seems to think that he's above them. Right. And, and right. that would be, right. and that would be in line with the way Kings thought. Yeah, I, I guess know. I just find it, that pathetic. It, oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I, I'm just saying but, that that comes from the the culture also. I think of that we see going back to you know medieval times and prior on on how kings were above. But it is human you know, nature above the law. What you were saying about David, though, it is human nature. We all do the same thing. We all elevate ourselves above anyone who we transgressed against. Oh, yeah. If we sin against somebody, it's like, you know, it's easy to try and and do exactly what Michael was saying David did. Just go to God and say, oh, God, it was just you that I sinned against. Because that person, they're way below me anyhow. And they're, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> for one thing, didn't mean to break the law. We don't have to. When we go to God and repent, we know He's going to forgive us. If we have to go to that person and repent, 
We don't know that they're going to forgive know. us at all. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's a really good point, Jim, because you're right. It's it's easy to go to God in my little prayer closet and, and, and ask forgiveness than to actually make it right on the human level. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right, you guys. Right. Well, this has been a really good conversation. Awesome. And uh, Michael, where can people find your stuff? Uh, in my apartment. That's where I live. Okay. <laughs> I'll send them on over. <laughs> I'll be sharing a map on Google Maps. Oh, and, uh... you go. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> you can find uh, anything that I've uh, written and, uh, at Amazon.com and various journals throughout academia and uh, other assorted odd places. And Jim, where can people find your stuff? On Amazon. All righty. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in, and we'll talk to you all next week.